Well, in contrast to spiritual children that are tossed around by the winds and the waves of doctrine, that are tossed back and forth by the cunning deceit of false teachers espousing false doctrine, Paul now, this morning, in verses 15 and 16, turns our attention to the positives. We looked at some negatives last week. We talked about the fact that we need to be growing in spiritual maturity. If you look back at your Bibles at verse 14 there real quick, Paul writes this, that we may no longer be children. One of the vital signs of a healthy, growing body of Christ is that all of its members are growing in spiritual maturity, that we're no longer babes in Christ, but we're growing up. We don't want to be content being babes in Christ. We want to grow up in our salvation. But not only is spiritual maturity a vital sign of a healthy, growing body of Christ, but a theological stability, we talked about that last week, is also one of the vital signs of a growing, healthy body of believers. Paul said this. He said, so we may not be, or that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We need to be growing in our understanding of doctrine and our understanding of theology. So last week, two vital signs of a healthy body, that of spiritual maturity and that of a theological stability. We're going to continue this morning. I'm going to give you three more vital signs of a healthy body. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, pens the following words. Rather, or but, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You may be seated. First point that I want to draw your attention to this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. A healthy body practices truth joined with love. A healthy body, a healthy growing body of believers, practices truth joined with love. Verses 15 and 16, our text for this morning, stand in stark contrast to the text that we studied last week. Paul painted a negative picture last week of an immature Christian who fails to grow to mature manhood. That person is easily disoriented, blown about like a rudderless ship on a tumultuous sea, easily deceived by the craftiness and the deceit of false teachers because they aren't firmly anchored in God's truth. They are given to every counterfeit false teacher. Rather, Paul says, and here he brings in the positive, Last week was the negative picture. Here's the positive picture in contrast. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Christ. There's two enemies of a successful or a vibrant or a growing Christian ministry. One is a departure from the truth. That's a compromise with lie, whether in words or deeds. A departure from the truth. That's enemy number one. The second enemy on the other hand, is a chilling indifference with respect to the hearts and lives, the troubles and the trials of others. In other words, that we would fail to love each other properly. Paul brings both of those issues to the forefront this morning in our text. We are to speak the truth in love. 
We are neither to depart from the truth, but neither are we to fail to love each other. Paul calls us to be growing both in truth and love. Let's look at this phrase, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. Those three words in English come from a single Greek word. It's the word alephuo. Uh, And it's actually, just track with me here for a second, it's a present participle verb. And what that means is it means that it's particularly challenging to translate into English. Your Bible probably says, speaking the truth in love. Uh, And that's a good translation, but you just need to know that it's difficult to get from the original Greek language to the English here in these three words. One word in the Greek, three words in the English, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. A a very literal, a wooden, literal translation of aletheuo is this. That doesn't sound very clean or very clear to the ear. It would be this. Truthing in love. Truthing in love. In love. You see, Alethuo, unless the context restricts it, is actually broader than what comes out of our mouths. It actually, that word encompasses all that we say and all that we do. And so, in light of that, let me, let me press forward uh, perhaps a little bit clearer translation of Paul's thinking here in light of the immediate context. As you look at your Bible in verse 15, see these words being true. In love, which encompasses speaking the truth in love. But it also brings with it acting the truth in love, having motives that are true in love, thinking the truth in love. It's broader than just speaking. That's the point that I want you to get here this morning. It's translated in most of our Bibles, speaking the truth in love, which is absolutely correct, but it's broader than that as well. And so I'm going to speak about it in terms of being true in love. We're not to be children driven about by every wind of doctrine, but rather we are to be steadfast in believing, in professing, and living out the truth, the revealed truth of God. If we connect that thought process back to last week's message, we might say this, that believers who are doctrinally stable, Believers who know and understand, growing, but know and understand, have have a grasp on God's word. Those who are doctrinally stable are also believers who are doctrinally sensitive. The doctrinally stable are doctrinally sensitive. We are being the truth in love, sensitive to what the doctrine teaches us and how to live it out. In love, Paul tells us. It's not just that we know the truth. It's not just that we can speak the truth, but it's that we live the truth. A believer's conduct, when we think about being the truth in love, a believer's conduct is to be marked by integrity, by transparency. In other words, what we say we believe has to be matched by our conduct. I think that's the emphasis Paul is is trying to push forward here in verse 15. Be the truth, but be the truth tempered with love. Because we can be the truth like a railroad. Can we not? We'll talk about that more here in just a few minutes. Paul says, be the truth, live out the truth, but do so tempered by love. A believer's conduct is to be transparent, marked by integrity. In other words, it's not just the testimony of our lips declaring that certain things are true, 
but it's the life displaying and confirming the truth that Paul has, I think, in view here in verse 15. With that said, let me ask you to consider your own life. Does, does, is what is displayed by your life, is that matched by the doctrine that your mouth professes? Is there congruency, is there integrity between your life and your speech? Oftentimes, an individual will say one thing but live another way. That presents a, a false narrative, so to speak. And it's very confusing to the world in which we live. Obviously, we know that we're all fallen. There are times where we don't do a good job, even as growing believers, in doing the very same things that we say we believe. But Paul calls us to be growing in truth, to be living truth. Do our lives display and confirm what our mouth speaks? Are we being true? Nothing is as bitter to others, whether to believers or unbelievers, as a professing believer who doesn't act genuine or who isn't being true. And again, we're all fallen. We all fall in many ways, James tells us. But we want to be growing here in being true, that our lives would be one that are marked with integrity. Paul's exhortation to us is that we live the truth we say we believe, that our lives will be marked with genuineness and, again, integrity, that our walk, though we fail, is growing more and more consistent with our talk, being the truth. How are you doing there? How, how am I doing there at being the truth, which encompasses speaking the truth, acting in accordance with the truth? And am I doing that in a way that's tempered by love? Which is what I want you to notice next in our text. Notice that Paul just doesn't tell us to manifest truth or to be true or to speak the truth. But he adds the qualifier in love. He adds that qualifier. Be the truth or manifest the truth in your life. Speak the truth, think the truth, act the truth, but do so tempered, he says, qualified by love. You see, truth and love form two essential components of the church's life. Speaking or being the truth pictures right doctrine, while in love pictures the right motives or the right spirit or the right attitude. Speaking the truth, being the truth, living the truth, that's that's what we believe. That's our doctrine. While in love, that qualifier that Paul adds there pictures the spirit or the attitude with which we are to live out the truth. We ought to have a great love for the truth, but we must live out that truth in love. You see, truth and love, contrary to popular opinion, they aren't mutually exclusive. They're not like oil and water. They always belong together. As a matter of fact, truth without love is brutality. Write that down. Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Love without truth, on the other hand, is hypocrisy. Whenever you hear somebody pitting truth against love or love against truth, you know that there's a clear misunderstanding concerning the Bible's teaching about those two virtues. Those two virtues can be held hand in hand. As a matter of fact, truth and love, far from being opponents of each other, are actually comrades in the great work of Christian maturity. That's why Paul pins them right here in Ephesians chapter 4. They're actually co-members 
They fit right together, side by side. Matter of fact, Paul's not afraid to put them side by side, truth and love as comrades in the great work of Christian maturity. The practice of truth should always be in the context of love. Let's flesh this out a little bit. What does this look like for us? Well, you might have heard it said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Maybe you've felt that way before. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You can be the, the, the espouser of truth all day long, but if people feel as though you're cold and callous towards them, you have immediately erected a wall. You don't have a listener anymore. Unless somebody has some measure, some degree, some understanding of the fact that you and I care for them as we share the truth. We're cold and we're calloused if we're just truth givers, but we're not also lovers of people. If others feel like we're just the talking truth head, but they feel little compassion from us, then an immediate wall is built. John Stott once said this. He said, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. You catch that? Truth becomes hard. It's hard to receive. It's hard to hear if it's not softened by love. But on the other hand, love becomes soft if it's not also strengthened by truth. And so the Apostle Paul calls us to hold both of them hand in hand together. To hold the two together. Now, let me take you back to the spiritual child imagery here. Spiritual children or immature Christians, just like physical children, don't know how to blend truth with love. They either think that to truly love someone is to shield them from the truth that they think might hurt them, but it's a mark of maturity when we're able to share truth with fellow Christians and to do so in a loving, edifying way. To not share truth with a person because we fear that it might hurt them is actually one of the most unloving things that we can do. We need to be honest. We need to be truthful. And keep in mind here, all of this falls within the context of the local church. As Paul's penning these words here in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he's writing to believers. Now, obviously, and I'll make mention here in just a moment, this has application outside of the church. This has application to our non-Christian friends. But Paul is writing to believers here. He's writing to us as we live life together, as we do life together in the context of this local growing body of believers, we are to be edifying each other, sharpening one another, encouraging one another with the truth. Sometimes that's tough, tough love. Every parent knows a thing or two about tough love. It's not always easy, but we do it because we love another. We do it for their greater good. We do it because we want this person to grow in holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I share truth, but I do so tempered with love. But a child or a spiritually immature person has trouble with blending truth with love. They oftentimes think that to truly love someone means that I just need to shield them from the truth that I think might hurt them. But it is a mark of maturity. It is a mark of spiritual growth when we're able to come alongside another believer and share truth, but to do so in a loving, edifying way. Matter of fact, wise Solomon said this in Proverbs 27.6. He said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I mean, many of us can probably think this morning about tough conversations that we've had to have with fellow believers. But we do so for their greater good, that they might know Christ more, that they might bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also just as possible for those of us who, by God's grace, have a firm grasp on the word. So not necessarily speaking about the young, immature Christian, but for those of us, by God's grace, who have a firm, growing grasp on the word of God to misuse truth in a way that hurts others. Think about it this way. Maybe you've profited greatly from a prominent Bible teacher. Maybe you've gained insight in the Word from your own devotional times. Maybe you've memorized a litany of verses that you can quote with relative ease. Well, that knowledge is great. But that knowledge gives you leverage. And you can either build others up with that leverage or you can do great damage with that knowledge. The knowledge of truth gives us the leverage to either build others up in the truth or to swing it like a spiritual wrecking ball. You see, we can either use truth, we can use our words of truth like a surgeon's scalpel doing much good, or we can use them like a sledgehammer and tear others down. We can build people up with truth, our brothers and sisters, or we can crush them with truth. Not only is what you say important, but it's how you say it. It's how they know that you love them. By God's grace, we can use truth to enlighten, to edify, to enrich other believers when we accompany it with love. Paul's telling us here in the text that truth must always be wedded to love. Truth must always be be wedded to love. They're inseparable twins. And Jesus is our great exemplar here, is he not? I mean, think back to John 1.14. Jesus steps on the scene, his incarnation. And John writes, here is the one who comes from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And make no mistake about it, Jesus said some very weighty things. Jesus had some very challenging conversations along the way in his ministry, but he always did so laced with love. He always did so laced with love. And so we look to him as our exemplar. A young man was once asked the question, what have you found to be the best translation of the New Testament? Without a moment's hesitation, he answered, my mother's. His friend said, your mother's? I didn't know she was a scholar. Did she translate the New Testament? The young man quickly replied, My mother was not a scholar, nor could she read a word of Greek, but she translated the New Testament into her life, and that made more of an impression on me than anything else I've ever known. And there is a sense in which that is what we are called to do as believers to each other, is to embody the truth of the word before each other in a way that builds up, in a way that's loving and edifying to each other. Let me apply this briefly evangelistically here, though. That's not the main emphasis of the text here in verses 15 and 16. We, the church, we, the local church, speak about us, Cape Bible Chapel. We, the church, are to be the truth in love as we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Let me just press pause right there. How, how are we doing there? 
Let, let me bring you back again to August 5th, Cape Splash Night. It's a great opportunity. Just bring somebody to expose them to other believers, to expose them to your testimony. Use that. Use that well. We, the church, are to be the truth in love, which includes speaking the truth in love as we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. It's this kind of church that God uses in powerful ways to glorify himself in reaching the lost. And I would say this. This this is challenging a little bit here. It is to me. The truth was never meant to be used as a club. There are many churches where the truth exists within the four walls of a brick-and-mortar building, and the truth is used like a club. The truth was used to be disseminated. The truth is meant to be disseminated. How are we doing there? It's always to be given out to each other and evangelistically given out as we share the gospel in love. You think evangelistically. You, you come and begin to share the truth of the gospel with a non-believer. That God is holy and that they are sinful. And their sin separates them from a thrice holy God. That is an offensive message to someone who, has, who doesn't have a changed heart. And if they don't have some sort of understanding that we love them and we care about them, they're not going to hear us. Now, having said all that, we need to keep in mind that all of, all of God's saving grace is couched in his sovereignty. He does as he wills. He acts as he wills in the believer, irregardless of us. But we are to be growing in truth, couched in love, being the truth, which encompasses speaking the truth in love. A growing, healthy body is actively joining truth and love. Number two on your outline. A healthy body submits to Christ's lordship in every area of life. A healthy body submits to Christ's lordship in every area of life. You see, instead of remaining children, Paul calls us here uh, in the second half of verse 15 to grow up. He says we are to grow up into him in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. Growing up in Christ refers to what we uh, call sanctification or progressive sanctification. It's that growing process that begins the moment of conversion and continues on until we breathe life's final breath. The moment that we are genuinely converted, Old heart is removed, new heart is put in, Spirit of God is deposited uh, as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance which is to come. At the moment of conversion, there, there begins a change process, a growing process. And it doesn't always look like this. Sometimes it's one step up and two steps back, and three steps up and one step back, and five steps up and two steps back. But there is the, the Christian life must be marked by a definitive growth. If there is not growth, then we need to ask the question, is there spiritual life? Everything that's living grows, including Christians. Okay? Are we growing? Paul tells, up, tells us here, we are to grow up. Now, Paul's assuming that his readers here are believers, writing to a local church, been converted, incorporated into the universal church, the body of Christ, and now Paul says, don't remain babes, but grow up. Grow up in every way. That's progressive sanctification. 
It's that sanctification process that's at the core of Paul's prayers for the Ephesian believers. Remember, Paul's prayed a couple of times in his letters so far for the Ephesian believers. Let me draw your attention back real quick. If you've got your Bible there in front of you, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 16 through 19. This is one of Paul's prayers for the Ephesian believers here. And I I want you to see what Paul means when he says we need to be growing up. Well, we can just look at his prayer here. Beginning in verse 16, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So you say, Paul, what does it mean when you say grow up into Christ? Well, just look at Paul's prayer there. That's what he means when he says grow up into Christ. That we will be growing in knowledge. That we will be growing in an understanding of all that we possess in Christ. And that it would be changing our day-to-day life. Let me draw your attention back to Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to look briefly at another prayer here. That gives flesh to what Paul means when he says grow up. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and the following. Paul again praying, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power. What does it mean to grow up? It means to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. What does it mean to grow up? It means to be rooted and grounded in love. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's that's just a little bit of what it looks like or what Paul means when he says, grow up in every way into him who is the head. Let me ask you this question, friends. What is the primary means of grace that God uses to grow his children? What is the primary means of grace that God uses to grow his children? It's his word. It's his word used by the Holy Spirit to grow us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. The word of God used by the Spirit of God. That is the means of grace that God uses to grow his children. Uh, Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, like newborn infants, long, that is crave, your translation may even say, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it, and here's the word again, you might grow up in your salvation. Let me ask you this question, friends. Is 1 Peter 2.2 true of you? Do you crave Do you long for pure spiritual milk so that by it you might grow up in your salvation? You know, there are some of us, and I don't mean this to to condemn or discourage in any way, shape, or form, but to encourage, to sharpen, to edify. But there are some of us that will go home today and we will put our Bibles on the table and we will get up next Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and we can blow the thin layer of dust off the top of them because that's where our Bible sat since last Sunday. Are we craving pure spiritual milk so that by it we might grow up in our salvation? 
And as we grow up in our salvation, we, we move from milk to meat, Paul wrote, to spiritual meat. But is that true of us? Are we longing for, craving for the milk of the word? You've heard me say this before, and I'll say it many times again. Much time in God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. Much time in God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. Is that true of us? If you want to look like Christ, you and I can't do it apart from his word. That's how we grow up. It's the reason that Paul was penning this letter to that young, growing church at Ephesus. That they might be edified, that they, that they might be growing in their walk with Christ. Notice that this growth in Christ is comprehensive. Look at your Bibles. God's people are to grow up into Christ or be being Christ-like or pursuing Christ-likeness, and here's the phrase, in every way. We're to be growing in every area of our spiritual lives. And you say, well, what would some of those include, Eric? Well, Paul's been talking about some of those areas that we are to be growing in uh, in his letter thus far. Even in chapters 2, 3, and 4, we would have noticed things like this. We are to be growing in our faith. We are to be growing in our knowledge of the Son of God. We are to be growing in unity amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to be growing in truth. We're to be growing in love. Those are just a few of the things that Paul has enumerated to this point in his letter that we are to be growing in. But we are to be growing in every way. Every facet of our spiritual lives should be growing. Just as a healthy child grows and develops in every area of life, so the child of God is to develop in every area of his or her spiritual life. Every facet of our lives should reflect that we are relationally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every facet of our lives should reflect that we are in vital union with, that we are engrafted into relationally the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul continues. Look there, he says, we're to grow up in every way into him. We're to grow up in every way into him. Another, word, another way here to understand Paul's words would be we're to grow up in every way toward him. The Greek could be translated into him or toward him. In other words, Jesus is the example that believers are to follow. We are to be growing toward him. He's our exemplar. He's the one who's leading. We're to be following him. We're to be growing toward him. I was thinking about this this week. Have you ever noticed that God almost seems to go to great lengths in Scripture to reveal to us, to disclose to us the fallenness of every biblical character? Think about that for a moment. It almost seems as though God goes to great lengths to disclose or to reveal to us the fallenness of every biblical character. Adam, Eve, Cain, Moses, Abraham, David, Peter. We could go on and on and on, and all their, all their failure is exposed. All their sin is exposed you ever wonder why that is? I submit to you that at least one of the reasons I think why that is is so that we don't begin to look to those individuals as being the ultimate exemplar, but that we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're growing toward him. 
Are there things in David's life that we are to emulate? Absolutely. David was called a man after God's own heart. But David is not our supreme exemplar. Christ is. Abraham had great faith, but Abraham is not our principal exemplar. Christ is. And so God shows us, he reveals, he discloses the fallenness of every biblical character so that we would turn our eyes and lock hard on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our exemplar. We are to be growing into him or growing toward him, growing towards likeness, his likeness, Paul says. Notice lastly in verse 15, the title it's given to Christ. Paul says we're to grow up in every way into or toward him who is the head. Who is the head? You see, headship. Think about headship for a moment. That word implies preeminence, prominence, authority. Just as the physical head governs the human body, so the body of Christ receives her orders from the Lord Jesus Christ, her head. As the brain is the control center of the physical life, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the organic source. He is the the life and the power to his body, the church. Let me ask you this question, friends. Is Christ your head? There are many people sitting in church pews throughout the world today who know a lot about Jesus Christ, the head, but are not connected vitally to Jesus Christ, the head. Are you? Paul encouraged us, encouraged the church at Corinth to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith, to to think about my life. Is my life producing fruit? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them, Jesus said. Does the fruit of my life, though sanctification is progressive in nature, Does the fruit of my life, if I take a cross-section, so to speak, of my life, does it bear witness, does it bear testimony to the fact that Christ is my head, that I am following hard after him, that I truly am redeemed, truly am reconciled, truly am justified, truly am saved by grace? Christ controls every part of his body. He alone is her inspiring Ruling, guiding, sustaining power, the mainspring of all of the church's activity, the center of all her unity, and the seat of all her life. True spirituality comes from tenaciously holding on to Christ, our head. To grow in his likeness, then, is to be completely subject to his controlling power, obedient to his every thought, to be obedient to every expression of his revealed will in his word. It's to personify Paul's prayers, for me to live is Christ. Is that true of us? That's that's part of what it means that Christ is our head. It means to live is Christ. Or Paul's words in Galatians 2.20 is, No longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Is that our prayer? Is that true of us? Is Jesus Christ our head? We are to be growing up in every way into him or toward him, toward his likeness. Because he is our head. He is our sustaining grace. He is the power. He is the source for all godliness. Let me turn your attention 
lastly, to point number three on your outline. And that is that a healthy body employs every member for the growth of the whole. A healthy, growing body of Christ employs every member for the growth of the whole. Verse 16 gives us the beautiful picture of a community of believers growing in Christ, functioning in unity, stabilized by the word of God, living out truth in love with each other, being the truth in love before each other and before a watching world and evangelism, and functioning together in harmony for the good of the whole. Look at your Bible here at verse 16. Paul says this, that we are to grow up into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul used a nautical metaphor back in verse 14, that of a rudderless ship being tossed to and fro on a tumultuous sea. Use a nautical metaphor there. Here in verse 16, Paul uses a physiological metaphor. Just as the human body, when properly supported and held together, experiences normal growth, so also the church, the body of Christ, when each of its members, when each of its individual members supports and maintains loving contact, truth and love with each other, will, under the sustaining care of Christ, grow from grace to grace and glory to glory. When each member of the body is functioning in their unique God-given role. How are we doing there? How are we doing there as individuals? Are we each playing our part in the growth of the whole? I mean, what Paul is telling us here is that nobody is exempt no, no one has, has any past to sit on the sidelines when it comes to life and function within the body of Christ. Let me take you back to verse 7 in chapter 4. God has gifted each one of us uniquely. You have a spiritual gift, if not spiritual gifts, that you are to use not for yourself, but for the common good, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. How are we doing there? I think oftentimes... In our, let me, let me speak about me. Oftentimes in spiritual laziness, I can expect others to do what I have been called and gifted to do. Just think about that for a moment. In spiritual laziness, I can expect everyone else to do what God has uniquely gifted me to do myself. What has God uniquely gifted you to do? that you might serve the greater whole of the body of Christ. And I'm talking about just here at the chapel, in our local body of believers. We might best think of verse 16 in terms of cooperation. We need to remember that as members of one singular body, more specifically a local body, we belong to each other, we affect each other, and we need each other. There's a reason that the, the writer of Hebrews said, don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but stir one another up. The original language there is, is agitate each other. Spiritually aggravate one another towards love and good deeds. Stir one another up is probably the way it's translated in your Bible. It's, it's cooperation in the body of Christ. 
I'm connected to you and you're connected to me and she's connected to her and he's connected to him. And we all have to play our part. Just like every member of a family unit has roles and responsibilities, so every part of the body of Christ has roles and responsibilities that we cannot negate, that we cannot brush off onto someone else and expect them to do all the work of ministry while I just sit back and be a consumer. You won't find that anywhere in Paul's letters. I mean, Paul is basically saying in our vernacular, get in the game and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Serve tirelessly. Serve effectively using the gift that I've given you. Serve sacrificially. Serve. Each believer, no matter how insignificant he or she may think they are, has a ministry to other believers. The body grows as individual members grow and as they feed on the word of God and minister to one another. You see, while empowering growth comes from above, from Christ our head, we just looked at that at the end of verse 15, spiritual power comes from above, comes from our head. Members of the body, though, themselves are to be fully involved in the process. You and I are to be involved in the growing process, the the growing of the body process here at the chapel. You see, again, Paul draws our attention to the importance of parts in relation to the whole. The whole body joined together, held together, grows and builds as each part does its work. It's one thing for individual members to be related to the head, but it's equally significant that the growth of the body depends upon the way these individual members relate to one another and perform their appropriate function or use their unique giftedness amongst the other members of the body. Let me illustrate this for you. Just like our physical bodies can't grow strong in some instances, we can't grow strong as a church if our body parts aren't working in harmony. Think about this. Most autoimmune diseases are the result of the body fighting itself. Instead of the body recognizing, hey, you're a necessary part, and enabling it, it recognizes what is necessary as foreign and fights itself. There's discord, there's disunity, there's, there's a lack of harmony there. The only way that we can grow in unity, the only way that we can grow in truth and love, the only way that we can build the body of Christ up is by acting in agape love. Look at the end of verse 16. Paul says, when each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's agape love. That's self-sacrificial love. That's I'm not just coming to church to be a consumer, but I'm coming to be a contributor. It's that kind of love. Autoimmune diseases. The body loses its ability to distinguish between that which is a foreign substance, which the immune system needs to attack, and one's own body, which the immune system needs to leave intact. In a similar fashion, the church can't grow strong if the individual members aren't working in harmony. And working harmoniously is more challenging than it sounds. Working in harmony, living in harmony, that's, that's difficult. You know, I oftentimes tell a young, uh, engaged couple that it's, 
it's not going to be long before you learn more about each other than you did the day you got married because you put two sinners under the same roof and sparks fly. That's just a reality of life. Now, we're to, to deal with, with that conflict or that relational tension in a Christ-honoring way, but when you put redeemed saints, members of the body of Christ, under the same roof, guess what happens sometimes? Sparks fly. And we can, we can, we can be disunified. We can live out of harmony. Paul tells us that we are to pursue harmony. And how do we do it? We're to do it by building each other up in love. You see, love is the soil out of which unity grows and takes place. Let me put Ephesians 4, 6, or 7 through 16 together for you. That's been our study for the last handful of weeks here. Just kind of glance back at your Bible. We're, we're out of time. We're closing here. We're going to land the plane. Let me put Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 together for you here. Look at verse 7. When the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he gave spiritual gifts to all Christians. That's verse 7. Some of the gifts that Christ gave to the church are individuals, individuals that are entrusted with the task of teaching. Those are apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. That's verse 11. One objective of this teaching ministry is to bring the saints to a point of maturity so that they're equipped for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. That's verse 12. Another objective of this teaching ministry was to to bring believers into the unity of faith so that every Christian has a growing knowledge of Christ and is therefore growing to mature manhood. That's verse 13. The purpose is to produce believers who are no longer naive and immature, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of smooth talk and false doctrine. That's verse 14. Instead, we, the church, are to live in such a way as demonstrates the truth that we believe in an unashamed, loving manner. Truth and love. That's the first part of verse 15. And as we learn to live the truth accompanied by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, we grow up into Christ in all things. That's the second half of verse 15. And as a result, verse 16, the whole body is joined together. The whole body is held as each individual member, uniquely gifted, contributes active energy and operating efficiency to serve the body of Christ as a whole. In other words, the body edifies itself and builds itself up in love. That's verse 16. Can you see the progression here? God's gifted you. God's gifted the church with with gifted teachers. And that reason, or that, that is to equip the believers for the work of ministry so that we might grow up into Christ, that we might honor and glorify him. May God make it so in each of us.